we've been in First John for a while, and in the last couple of weeks, we've actually been talking about evangelism. Uh, the idea that John has some thoughts and ideas for how we as Christians uh, can spread the word and have other people come and believe. We, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about yelping for Yahweh, you know, giving God positive reviews on our regular speech and act- actions. And then uh, we shared a few of the things that you and the congregation have done to sort of you know, proclaim how good God is to people in your life, your experiences, um, as you're, as you're in and around the area. Last week we talked about help along the way for people who are spiritually seeking. They're, they're, they're interested and they want to know more about God. How, how even uh, the hardest questions really have one answer, and that answer is Jesus. And it's really on us to find ways to give the answer of Jesus uh, to people who are searching. Um, if, you're, if you're like me, you have uh, a number of people in your life who seem like their hearts are just hard against uh, faith. They're just not interested in faith. Um, these might be coworkers. It's especially challenging when they're friends and family, especially close family and close friends. People who you desperately want to see come to faith and be a part of the church to know and love God as you know and love God. This is especially challenging for someone like me who over the years have, has really come to recognize that the only true place of peace, the only true place of joy that I know that's lasting, that's steady, that doesn't end, that doesn't quit, is the church and the spirit of Christ who empowers it. And so when I see these people in my life, these ones that I love dearly, and I see them obviously because they're human beings searching for the spiritual, searching for something, and yet rejecting Christ over and over again, rejecting the church over and over again, uh, having a hard heart towards uh, Christian faith, it really, it, it, it's hard. It's tough. And so today, I would like us, as we um, embark on a journey through this scripture, to be thinking about this question. What, what is it that we're supposed to do? What, what kind of prayer should we be praying? What, what should we be doing in order to, to draw those with a hard heart in? Right? That's going to be our question today. How do we pray for or witness to people with hard hearts? What about those who are anti-Christian? And I think John might have some actually very surprising things to say about that. So let's uh, engage uh, this passage together. This is 1 John five sixteen to 17. If any of you see your brother sinning a sin that doesn't end in death, you will ask in prayer and God will give him life. This is for those whose sins don't end in death. There is a sin that, sin that ends in death. I'm not telling you to pray about that. Every unrighteous act is sin, but there is sin that does not end in death. Might be a little strange to think about this as a text about evangelism, but I actually think that it, it really is when you get in deep into the logic. And, and one of the things that jumps out at you immediately when, you're, when you hear this text is that, or that refrain over and over, end in death, end in death, ends in death. Uh, the Greek there um, doesn't actually have a verb end. It's just a sin towards or into, resulting in death. Uh, so I've glossed it a little bit there to, to kind of get the, the sense of what John is talking about. He's saying there is something that you can do out there. There is something that people can do, that they can continue to do, that they can practice over and over. And if they do this, there will be an end to, to it, and it, it will be death. And a lot of people have thought over the years, maybe this is talking about physical death, right? And maybe a, a sin that might lead to physical death might be something like um, heroin addiction or murder. If you're a person who um, is caught up in a, in a very uh, 
destructive cycle of addiction that very often ends up with you dead. And we know people who are like this. If you're a person who lives by the sword, you are very likely to die by the sword. And so people think maybe the sin that leads to death is our sins that are, that are things that we do that, that, that can end up in our physical death. I want to suggest that's not the case. Um, look at how John uses death. And we could, um, we could multiply this uh, a whole bunch of different ways, but here are just a few samplings of how John writes about death. He says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Death, it clearly here, is not a physical thing. It's some kind of, it's some kind of ex- experience or existence. Uh, this is in uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus uh, says this in John 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, eternal life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Clearly, what, what Jesus is talking about and then what John picks up later is that death is, a, is spiritual death. It's, a, it's, a, it's an existence or, or, or a being where we are dead inside. We are far from God. We are, we are wrecked by sin, wrecked by everything. We don't have the life, the eternal life of God living in us. It is spiritual death, and that's the first thing on your note sheets. When John talks about death, he almost always means spiritual death, and he definitely means spiritual death here. So what is he saying about spiritual death? And what is spiritual death? Well, spiritual death is, uh, in, in the worst case, uh, for someone who is, is radically separated from God and ends up living in eternity without the life of God in them. Uh, traditionally, we call this hell. That's the, that's the big be-all, end-all of what spiritual death results in. It's the big bad place, the big bad way to go. And if we uh, go back to the text, we can see a little bit about what John is concerned about. He says, there is sin that ends in death. Every unrighteous act, everything that we do that's not fully in keeping with God's plan, that's, that's sin. But there's a really big sin. There's a sin that ends with us being separated from God forever. Now, a few months ago, we actually talked about this. Uh, if you, if you, oh, by the way, plug for uh, Josh and for Jeannie on the website. Now, you go to the website, and you can do this right now with your phone. So you can go to coastbible.org, and you can click on it, and then you can go to the menu. And not only is there listen, there's now watch. Because, and it's really cool, the way that, that camera that Josh has back there picks it up, I look very orange, like our president. Um, and it's, it's fun to look at, let me tell you. And it, so if you'd like to, there's a link to our YouTube page, and a lot of our, a lot of our uh, sermons are available um, there, so you can not just hear, but watch as well. I'm making that plug because uh, if you want to hear more about this, a couple of months back we had a sermon called, um, Where Does Your Love Come From? It's on 1 John uh, 3, 4 to 9. And I want to show you a little bit of the text that we talked about then. It says, every person who commits the sin also commits the rebellion. Because the sin is the rebellion. You know that the Father um, gave uh, us the life of God in Christ to carry sins away since sin is not in him. No one living in him sins. The capital S, big sin. Those who do this capital S, big sin, have never seen or known him. And really, we use that word rebellion to describe it. It's this attitude, this constant d- decision, this, this resistance to absolutely oppose the idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God in whom there is life. 
Um, if you want to, if you want to spend time with that and 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 get uh, the, some of the exegesis and draw it out a little bit, I encourage you go to our website, listen to or watch. Where does your love come from? It was a couple months ago. But the bottom line is this: it's a person who's in rebellion against God. This is what ends in death, capital D, death. Now, if you're a person who has at some time believed in God, you can't do this. If you've believed in Jesus, you're not uh, susceptible. You already have the Son. You've already believed. But that does not mean that there are not consequences if you walk away from faith and, and, you, and you start living in opposition to Christ. Uh, in our text, it says it ends in death. Well, it might not be your spiritual death, but it could be the spiritual death of the people around you because you're constantly pushing people away from Christ, away from Jesus. You're living in rebellion, in opposition, and that's the next thing in your note sheets. The sin that ends in death is insistent, relentless opposition to accepting Jesus as the Son of God and source of capital L, F, etern- capital L eternal life. If you're the kind of person who does this, in fact, the kind of person we've been talking about with a hard heart, well, your sin is going to end in spiritual death. And this is exactly the kind of person that we've been thinking about, someone who either has never believed or who now uh, is, is, is walked away from faith, and, and we're thinking, how can we get them back, or how can we introduce them to faith for the first time? How can we get these people to believe because we desperately want them to have the joy and the communion, the peace and the fellowship that we experience here? What do we do? Well, John tells us. He says, if any of you see your brother sinning a sin that doesn't end in death, ask in prayer, God will give him life. This is for those whose sins don't end in death. But there is a sin that ends in death. And I'm not telling you to pray about that. Every unrighteous act is sin, but there is sin that does not end in death. This might be um, surprising. It might be counterintuitive. But here you are. You're a, person, a Christian, and you're in the church, and you have this deep desire, this love for someone, a friend or a family member, someone who's either never believed or has walked away from faith, and you're wondering, what must I pray? What must I do in order to get this person turned around? How can I get God to, to, to get this one for me? And John says, you know what? I, I don't, I'm not going to tell you to pray for that person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that there's other things that you should be praying for that's the beginning of, of verse 16. We'll get there. But he's saying, I'm, I'm telling you, I don't think that this is really important for you to do. In fact, if we're taking John at his word, he's telling us, you know what? All those people in your life that you deeply love and, and you're so concerned about, you know what? You might not want to bother. It may not be worth your time. This is really the, the, the kind of the language that we're getting here. I am not telling you to pray about that. He, he is creating space. He, he's not saying don't pray for that. He's not saying don't you know, worry about those people. But he is kind of saying, hey, I've been around a long time. I've seen how this story goes. You've only got so many minutes, so many hours in your day, in your week. You've only got so much time, so much energy that you can commit to God, to commit to prayer. And I'm telling you this, this right here, this is not what you need to be spending your time doing. The return on investment is very low. And maybe some of us have experienced that. There are people in our lives where we've spent 
hours on our knees. We've strategized. This is what, this is the, the argument that's finally going to get this person to believe. If I just do this, that, or the other thing, and we go, and it's like banging our heads against the wall. And John is saying, this remember, John's writing this near the end of his life. He has seen Christians come and go. He has seen people reject the gospel over and over again. He's seen people live it for a little while and then walk away. He knows how the story ends. And he's saying, I really don't think this is the best use of your time. the next thing in your note sheets. John recommends deprioritizing prayer for those who keep rejecting the gospel. Notice I say he deprioritizes it. He does not forbid. John John understands that when we love people, uh, we pray for them. And he knows you're probably not going to stop. But he is saying, maybe this isn't the right way to go about it. Maybe this isn't really how we're supposed to be uh, working with those who, who keep consistently rejecting the gospel. Yeah, in fact, the language that he uses, uh, it, it's very much like, I'm not telling you to do that, but I know you will, and that's okay. I mean, obviously, God's not looking to reject any prayers. But, but John really does seem to kind of want to pr- pull us away into a different sort of prayer. And that brings up a really weird question, because that is so counterintuitive. When was the last time you are like, oh, I'm going to go to church, and the, and the leader guy's going to be like, stop praying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nope, that's, that's not... Usually I, I go to the church and leader guy's like, pray more, <laughs> pray harder. Uh, th- this is not weird. Isn't that strange uh, that, that John would, would think like that? And for those of us who know God and know who Jesus is, I mean, we know that this is weird. We know that God loves the lost, right? We know that God cares about people, even those who keep rejecting the gospel. How is it that John can tell us not to pray for these people? This is a question I have up here. Um, we know God cares deeply for the lost. Matthew eighteen twelve. that's the one where um, Jesus says, hey, if any of you has a hundred sheep, right, and one uh, walks away or gets lost, you leave the 99 to go get that one, right? God is, is relentlessly loving. He loves people. He loves the lost. And he, he's willing to give his own son. He's willing to give his own life. To, that's how much he cares and loves for, for all the lost. And yet, how is it then that John sh- thinks that we, shouldn't, we should be praying about other things? What, how do you square that circle? That's a very strange thing for John to say. Let's look at the uh, text again. If any of you see your brother sinning a sin that doesn't end in death, you will ask in prayer, and God will give him life. We've talked about the sin that ends in death, rejecting God. What's the sin that doesn't end in death? What are those sins like? This is a picture of a turkey. Ha-ha! I'm really pumped about this Thanksgiving feast, y'all. Uh, I've, been, uh, I've been unable to attend for several years, and, and I have such sweet memories of the glory of the Thanksgiving feast. I've probably built it up too much, but I was thinking a lot about turkey, which is something I probably would do anyway. I'm a, I'm a big fan. This is oven-roasted turkey. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty good. It's like, to me though, it's kind of, it's kind of weak. It's a little bit cheating. It's something you just throw it in the oven. You don't think about it. There's no real challenge to it, I guess. And also I feel like they dry out, uh, really quick. So I prefer, I prefer in th- this next one, this is the deep fried shirt turkey. Uh, yeah, I've, I've done a few of these bad boys in my day and whoo, they're awesome. Uh, if you do it right, uh, what you get is you get the, the, the skin becomes crispy. 
because it's deep fried in peanut oil. And yet the inside is like this, the moisture is sealed in, so the meat is really juicy. It's like a, uh, the, so the texture is like um, a turkey french fry, because it's crunchy on the outside and chewy on the inside. It's really, really delicious. And I'm a big fan. And I've done this uh, several times. Uh, this right here, the next one, is what I hope to achieve someday in my life. <laughs> this, is the, um, this is the bacon weave smoked turkey. This is sort of like the holy grail of turkeys. Uh, if, if that does not look appetizing to you, you're probably a vegan, and I'm sorry. Uh, I respect your political commitment to um, ending animal suffering, but man, that looks amazing, and you are missing out. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of turkey. Su- such a big fan of turkey, in fact, that uh, you get to see uh, me... Gosh, 14 years ago, this next one, the first turkey I ever cooked. Yeah, um, and you're like, what is that? Uh, that? That's me in Japan in 2003. Uh, in Japan, they don't have turkeys. And yet, uh, a number of us expatriates, we were like, we, we've, got to, we've got to hold this American tradition. And so we imported a turkey from South Korea, uh, just for the true fact. And, uh, and right there you see Jess. Jess um, was an Australian, and she was curious about this strange American custom. And so you can see her being like, hmm, what an interesting thing to do, cooking a turkey. They don't really have ovens in Japan in most houses, and none of our houses did. Moreover, they don't have very large barbecues or grills, and they certainly don't have rotisseries because they don't eat turkey. So my friend Ben, uh, God bless him, he was like, you know what we're going to do, Tom? We're going to invent a water wheel. And then we are going to create a rotisserie over this open grill, and we are going to cook a turkey and eat it as though we were still on our home soil. God bless America. (laughs) So yeah, you can see that we got Tupperware, right? And obviously I didn't have anything to do with crafting this because I'm totally incompetent at that stuff. But uh, but he he got it such that like we just used the water from those. And it would, like, turn over. Like, and we literally cooked uh, the turkey over that grill for, like, six or seven hours. Um, and it was horrible. It was still terribly undercooked, and so we had to microwave most of the meat. But, uh, <laughs> but, but that was my first, my first attempt at the, uh, the cooking of the turkeys. Uh, like I said, I'm a pretty big fan of, of turkey. In fact, if I can be honest with you, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday, and it's a holiday in which I... Well, I go a little bit overboard. I do. Um, I obviously go overboard quite a bit, but this is a special, special moment in my life. And uh, usually when you go to Thanksgiving, uh, people, like, they, there's so many good things, you know, cranberry salad and stuffing and blah, blah, blah. I just literally just mount, like, a stack of turkey on my plate and just put gravy on it, and that's it. I, don't, I, I, I look forward to turkey all year long, and I just can't be bothered with, like, green bean casserole or whatever you all make. I mean, who cares? Just get me to the protein. And in the 15 minutes that it takes me to get three plates of turkey, I get to a, a level of tryptophan in my system that's so powerful uh, that if you don't know what tryptophan is, it's the, uh, the essential amino acid that's in most protein. And it's in, uh, it's in normal amounts in turkey, but because we consume so much turkey at Thanksgiving, we really go over the, uh, the five grams a day that we're expected to have. If you're expected to have five grams of, of tryptophan in a day, I probably have about 65,000 grams on, on Thanksgiving. And what tryptophan does is it, 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 it it releases serotonin, which is, a, uh, which is one of the, the chemicals in your brain that makes you feel peaceful and happy. Um, and, and so when you, basically what I do is I overdose on tryptophan. And so 15 minutes after the meal, I just pass out. 
Which is sad. Because that means I miss all of the cool stuff that we do at Thanksgiving. All those things, all the activities, the throwing of the football, the watching of the football, the, the games that we play. I miss all of them because I'm passed out on a chair like with my tongue hanging out and drool like falling down my face. I miss the whole thing because I'm OD'd on tryptophan. Turkey is a good thing, unless you're a vegan. But too much turkey is a problem. If you gorge yourself on it, you suddenly miss out on a whole, whole bunch of other stuff. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if what John's doing in this text is he's actually bringing us to, to think about, hey, you're so worried about this other thing, pr- praying for these people that, that are lost, that you're missing the fact that you're, you're just letting go of all the, the, what I like to call, turkey sins that go on in your own congregation, in your own church. These are things that are good in your life, in the life of your church, but you obsess over them, you get super excited about them, you go excessive, and you, and you just go after them. You gobble, 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 and pretty soon you're passed out. Pretty soon you're so filled up with this that, that you don't have time or space or, or, or for anything else. Man, if we could go forward here, I want to uh, define these turkey sins um, as the little sins that make us open to charges of hypocrisy and make churches ineffective. Turkey's a good thing, but when you, when you overindulge it, it, uh, it wrecks you and messes with you. And I'm wondering if, uh, if we don't have um, these sins in our own community. Sins that, you know, yeah, they don't lead to death. They're not going to train wreck everything. They're not going to destroy everything. They're little, little sins, little, little bad things, but we kind of tolerate them because we love each other, right? We think that we're all great. We want to be friends. We don't want to rock, rock the boat or anything. And so we just, we let, we just sweep these under the rug. We don't worry about them. Everything's going to be fine. If we um, look back uh, at the text for a second, I think. Maybe. If any of you see your brother sinning a sin that doesn't end in death, you will ask in prayer and God will give him life. You're sitting there in the church and you start to look around and you recognize that there's people around you and, and they're not perfect, but they are habitually just engaging in something uh, that's sinning a sin, that uh, sinning right there, that's a very literal t- uh, translation of the Greek. It's, it's like this ongoing participation, this like never-ending, quit, never-quitting sin. It doesn't end in death, but they just don't, they don't stop. You know, They just pile up the, the turkey and just keep eating it. Well, your job then is to ask in prayer and God will give that person life. I believe that this is John's solution to the problem of how we are to have a faithful witness to those with hard hearts. If you think about uh, what we think of as the little sins, the turkey sins, oh, turkey, who cares, you know? Little sins in Orange County. What, 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 what might those be like? I, I have a list here. If you want to, um, if you want to add them, down below in today's takeaway, you can. These are just my take on, uh, you know, the turkey sins of Orange County. Sounds a little bit like the Desperate Housewives of Orange County, which is a show that was on TV, or maybe still is. I don't know. The first one, the, this, I think this is crazy. You know, Orange County is the home to the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. If there's one thing we know about Orange County, it's the place where you can finally become happy. You can have everything you desire. I'm wondering if we don't idolize happiness in this place. 
This is the first one I think is, is the, the Orange County sin. The one, the one that, it, hey, happiness, right? Uh, who doesn't want to be happy? The pursuit of happiness declared in our, uh, in the, what, the preamble or the Declaration of Independence, something, something that we think is important in America talks about going to get happiness. And what happened, happiness is a good thing. God doesn't want people to be miserable all the time. But think about this. Think about how much time we spend going after happiness. Happy, 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 happy. Think about how much time we spend and how much energy we devote to making sure that we're having the best possible experience of life, that we're not forced to suffer, we're not forced to live in any way that's uncomfortable for us. We get everything that we want because really, isn't that what God wants for us? In a way, in a way, are we not sitting out there thinking, I want to be faithful to God, yes, but I also want to be happy. I want to, I want to do both. I want to have my cake and eat it too. And I'm going to divide my loyalties between going after this thing that I think is going to make me happy and being respectful and not doing... Ba- I wonder, I wonder, if we as a result start looking like maybe happiness is our God. Think about these people that we're trying to reach. We're so desperate to reach the lost. Right? These people who keep saying no to God. I wonder if they look at our lives, they look at the life of Tom, and they're like, man, he is just radically different, that guy. I mean, here he is with his 65-inch TV and his PlayStation 4 and his beautiful home. I mean, he's really suffering for the cross. You can tell that that guy loves God most, right? Or does he look kind of just like me? Maybe he's just as interested in happiness as I am. And really, why would I miss the East Coast football games on Sunday morning? Why bother? Another one um, I think that we struggle with terribly in this place is status. I mean, you got to have that new, that new car, right? You gotta have those new clothes. You gotta look the part so people know that you've got it figured out. Here's one I, I think about sometimes. Um, we, uh, we actually turn child raising into a status competition. Like, who, who's raising their kid the best? <laughs> and, and, and then we'll, we can even gossip about it sometimes. We tell each other, oh, well, so, so, we say this, that, the other thing. And I wonder, I wonder if someone who's not a part of the church doesn't believe in God, has no need for God, is hearing that and looking and being like, gosh, they're interested in all the same stuff that I am. Huh. Why would I need to not sleep in on Sunday morning when... Number three. Comfort. This is why I call it a turkey sin, because comfort food and being comfortable... Oh man, I love that. Yesterday I laid in bed after the girls' uh, soccer game for five hours. Yeah, I, I, I turned down the air conditioning so the house was cold. And then I got under the covers because what feels better than that? And then I read a book for three hours. And then I tried to sleep for two. Wow. That's not totally pathetic. <laughs> Wow. I, I'm telling you, I, I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about life here in Orange County, and isn't it crazy how much time we spend, how much th- effort and thought we put into making ourselves comfortable, getting that softest blanket and snuggling up. I mean, and the, again, the, none of these things are bad. 
It's not like being virtuous and honorable and having status is a bad thing. It's not as though being comfortable, safe, and secure is a bad thing. I don't think God wants us to be unsecure and unsafe all the time. But isn't it crazy how this good thing, we take it and we obsess about it and we idolize it, and pretty soon it's weird how we don't look that much different than anybody else. And John says, if you see a brother or a sister sinning a sin that doesn't lead to death, sinning, you know, idolizing happiness, idolizing status, comfort, you can come up with your own. If you see that, what does he say? He says, go get in their face and make them feel bad about it. No. He says, pray, and God will give that brother or sister life. Think about this now. Is that what you expected? God will give this person life. Shouldn't God make a person feel guilty and then repent and then confess and then get better? No, no, no. God will give that person life. You see, if you think about these things, happiness, status, comfort, any of the little sins, the turkey sins, the things that we gobble up to make us feel good, what are they really? What are they really? They're really our attempt to have a full, joyful, peaceful life outside of God. That's really what it is. We're going after these things, this, you know, the safety, the security, the perfect life, having, you know, being happy all the time. We're going after those things because we're human beings and we crave joy. But we're doing it with the mouse, the Mickey Mouse, and we're doing it with the turkey, and we're doing it with the 65-inch television screen and the important card that we got for, to, so we have space for our kids. We do it with all of these things instead of having the life and peace that God promises to anyone who trusts in him. And we get caught up in these cycles. And I think, I think that as a result, the people out there are looking at the people in here and being like, yeah, I don't see it. And John says, pray and God will give him life. God will begin satisfying the needs that lead to these kinds of sins, that God will start giving us the hope and the joy and the peace and, and, and the life that we will be living for eternity. And when we have that, we won't have to run to these things. We won't have to gorge ourselves on these things. Instead, we will have God's life, God's peace, God's satisfaction, God's joy. And when we have that, I wonder, I wonder if then the people out there might start looking at the people in here and being like, huh, that's weird. If we started getting out of our comfort zone, if we started willingly engaging in things that we know aren't going to make us happy, if we began humbling ourselves and, and not looking to be number one and the best, and the, instead we were filled up with the life of God, the life of Jesus Christ. Do you ever stop and think, what it is that people think when they hear about the church in Orange County. Not Coast Bible Church, but the church. Christians in Orange County. They probably think about, um, you know, the leader guy in his sandals uh, and his, you know, uh, his cool uh, rip curl shirt, engaging people with like a really cool story. And uh, they probably think about huge buildings that are super expensive. They probably think about lights and, and music and sound and beauty and excitement. Is that what they're supposed to think about? 
When, can, can you imagine what it would be like if when someone said that the Christians in Orange County and people were like, man, they're crazy. I have never seen people who aren't, you know, who are willing to control themselves like, like that because their joy comes from things other than money and sex and power. I've never seen people who are willing uh, to give the way that they give and to, to suffer in some cases, to get out and, and do incredible things uh, because of God. I have never seen anyone more compelling than they are. And while I don't necessarily agree with whatever they believe in, there's something going on there that's real. The last thing uh, in your note sheets. If we truly want to see the lost saved and Orange County transformed, we must first pray against the turkey sins in our own congregation. We don't need to get in each other's faces and be like, I saw what you were doing. We don't need to look at ourselves and be like, well, thank goodness I'm perfect. Instead, we need to pray to God to purify this place from those little things, those little things that make us just like them. Because when we start to get purified that way, when we start to live radically and differently, and, and then they're going to notice. They really will. The history of the church has always been people being like, wait a minute, so you're telling me that instead of denying Jesus Christ, you're going to let a bear maul you to death in the arena. Hmm. That seems like some pretty real faith. I'm not saying you need to get mauled to death by a bear. That would be horrible. But I do think that it is time for us as a church community to begin praying for each other that we will let those things go, that we instead will be filled with the life and love of Jesus Christ. And then I, I think maybe we should pray for the churches around us too. Because what would it be like if all these churches started doing that too? If we all started praying for holiness, for purity, to get rid of these, these little sins that are, that, are, that are taking us away and making us look just like the culture around us. Instead, we became, again, that radical community, that community of people satisfied not by you know, money and stuff and sex and all that, but satisfied by the love of God. If that began to happen, I can tell you that churches would no longer need to put on awesome shows with lights and smoke in order to get people to come in and watch. Because there is nothing, nothing more compelling than the image of Jesus Christ lived out in a human life. So let's pray for each other and let's ask God to make us radical. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will um, open our eyes. Let us see how we just blend in, how we just are like um, the world around us. Shake us up. Give us a, a desire, a, a passion to see that change. God, I pray that we will pray for each other. Pray for this church. Pray for other churches. It's claiming that, that it's time for us to quit these sins that don't lead to death. 
to instead be filled up and, and empowered and enthralled with your love again, your grace again. God, I pray you'll stir your spirit up in our hearts that we uh, will seek to live ever more like Christ, rejecting the idols of happiness and of status, of comfort that wreck the world around us. God, I pray deeply that you will light our hearts on fire to be in love with you. And God, in that, I pray that those people that we love so dearly with their hard hearts who just won't turn, who won't look, that instead, God, they will look and be blown away by what you've done in us. Purify us and bend their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.